Hi, Jerry. Hi, Ellen. Hey, Mark. Hi there. Richard, hi. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> really putting your picture in? Uh, well, if he hasn't. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi. <laughs> well, suddenly we have pictures, huh? Well, until they decide. Um, I think it has to do with bandwidth. Sometimes uh, they run it for personal things. They said they would uh, sometimes not let you do pictures if they were running out of space. Uh -huh. They zoom. For the free account. Uh, I can shut off the video. Okay. I mean, if, if Zoom wants to shut off the video, they'll shut off the damn video. Uh, I, I think I'm going to shut it off. Yeah. Okay. Are we? No? Yes, then I'll just come. Did I hear Naomi? Yes, she's coming. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Wow, see. Hi, Naomi. Hi. <laughs> Are you sure they can't see us? I can see you. What? I can see you, Naomi. Mm. I'm kidding. I can't see you. That would be difficult, I think. <laughs> You have a good imagination, maybe. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, for, uh, for coming. Uh, my earphones on. I've got my video. And make sure that my face is somewhere in the picture. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, and we'll start. Okay, um, so this uh, this is a, uh, a share that's a little different than I usually give, and you'll see that um, I'll cheat a little bit because of it. Uh, normally, I only give shirim on topics that I've had a long time to study, and I try and absorb everything, and I get um, hopefully um, more time to think about how to teach than to prepare. Uh, this is, I think, a very timely topic, but not one that I've had anywhere near enough time to really absorb all the materials. I'm sorry, I'm a little out of breath. <laughs> there we go. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, how halacha works in Dini Mamanot. And then I'm going to do um, probably in large measure um, introduction to really how we should handle, how we should handle this topic. And, um, and then we'll see, at the, we'll see how far we get in this year. And uh, then we'll decide exactly what we want to do. What we want to do tomorrow. So the introduction is that um, Dini Mamanot and Halacha 
Um, let's talk about justice first. So justice is a complicated term, right? You know, many of you have studied Plato and you know that justice is a complicated term. Um, but more than that, um, there are at least in Dini Melmanot, there are at least two fundamental notions um, which often square with each other. One is a notion that you should get what the law says you should get. Um, and the idea is that the law should also should also square with, with some independent notion of ethics. But for now, let's assume that you should get what the law says you should get. And the, um, right, that's one kind of thing. And the second is that, um, that what's fair or not is determined by two different factors. One is the relative power of the parties involved. Um, and you know, the more Marxist you are, the more likely that's, that is going to affect your consideration. But assuming that there's nothing fundamentally unjust about the relationships between, relationship between the parties, then justice is often a measure of getting what you ex out of getting out of a relationship what you expected. There isn't really an objectively or necessarily an objectively right or wrong right or wrong notion of what of of how a dini momentous issue should be resolved. Fundamentally, it should be resolved in terms of the expectations of the parties, especially if they entered into a formal contract. So one of the basic challenges um, for halakha, uh, living as it does in a world where many, if not most, of our contractual relationships are outside the Jewish community, or outside at least certainly the presumed jurisdiction of halakha, so our expectations in many ways are governed by, illegal, by, by factors other than halakha, that's A, and B, one of the, way, the reasons that going according to the law yields justice is that the law is predictable, right? People know what right, expectations are shaped by the law and then following the law meets both, both, both assumptions of justice. But since halakha has very few cases or a very narrow band of cases, it's very difficult to have any expectations at all about halakha. And that raises deep challenges about how to deal with cases that have real, um, right, the cases where the purpose is not just to resolve it in some way or other, but the purpose is to reach a substantively just result. It's very hard to do that by following halakha per se. Okay, that's the, so we ask like, what does Judaism say about this? So there's often not a real answer because what Judaism says about this is you should do um, what the parties expect, assuming that their relationships are, their init the initial starting points are not things that we find inherently ethically objectionable. And so figuring out what you should do is really, a, is really a, a matter of figuring out whether you think the initial relationships were just and what the expectations of the parties are. And the problem is those mo the expectations of the party may be, may be very different than the expectations of the party that halachic precedents assume. Okay, so we have a number of reasons that halacha is problematic. One is that it doesn't in practice govern the expectations of its uh, constituents, right? their expectations are often governed by their experiences in a, in a non-halachic realm. Secondly, there often simply are not enough precedents to create expectation within halacha so that even if we say, okay, people are bound, right? They're religiously supposed to have the expectations of halacha and that we have to do this because if we don't allow that, then eventually halacha is, you know, is completely useless because if we allow people to legitimately have expectations other than halakha, so then who needs halakha? Um, but we simply, there, there is no way to have expectations based on halakha because there simply isn't enough of a body of precedent. So those are the two things that I want to set out. 
Um, and if you look at the treatments of the issue of whether employers are bound to um, pay the wages of their employees during the um, during the current uh, the current crisis, you'll see that um, they tend to be very qualified and not you know and say basically would have to hear the cases before we say anything much at all. Um, so what I want to do today, um, and on this mere seven-page source sheet, is I want to first um, teach several truvot that set the precedent for thinking, perhaps not halakhically, about what halakha or right, what a beit din should say about cases like this. Um, and then um, I'm going to take just like the first line and a half of one of the several excellent presentations of the academic halachic literature, academic presentations in the sense that they were presented as, here's what halacha has to say, as opposed to here's what halacha says you should do. So we'll just take you know, the first paragraph of one and look up one footnote so you can see what it would really take for me to, right, to begin to command this material. And then if we have time, I also prepared a, an outline of what I see as the fundamental issues that are addressed in the technical halachic literature. And that I think is probably more than we can get through today. We'll see if we do. And then depending on where we get today, um, tomorrow we'll do some samples of footnotes deeper, in, deeper into the literature. Okay, um, I guess even right now, if people have questions, um, this would be a good time to stop and, and ask them if anyone has a question already. Um, okay, I'm guessing, I'm guessing not then, okay. Um, just going to make sure that I can see the chat. Okay, so we're going to start with a tshuva of the Trumas Hadeshin. So we're in, uh, I think it's 13th century, I never remember, 13th or 14th century um, Ashkenaz. And the thing about the Trumas Hadeshin is that uh, at least some of his questions are presumed to be, are presumed to be self-written, or that he, he, or he, write, he writes the questions that he answers. So you don't know whether this is actually something that was, in, that it was intended or was actually applied in practice. Or whether it um, whether it's just his theoretical position of what should be. Um, okay, so here's here's what here's what the uh, Truma Sadeshin says. Sheila, Sibur Mas, right? So you have some kind of community that has had a um, has had the government impose some kind of tax on it. So they agree. That everybody who uh, who has everybody should write down whatever possessions they have that are obligated in tax, right? So the tax is a um, is a wealth tax, right? It's it's an asset it's an asset based tax, not an income based tax. Uh, income based taxes were notoriously much harder to evaluate. Uh, so asset based and maybe they're less fair than asset based taxes. So classical must misim were always asset based. Shaval kacha um, right? Um, the editor says I don't know if the Trumas Hadeshin was uh, was bound by his grammar. Um, right? So everyone has to, everyone has to um, everyone will swear that they have not hidden any of their assets. There's nothing in the Cayman Islands or anything like that. Right? And they want everybody. They want some impartial judge based on this ledger of everybody's assets to decide what the obligations are and what the obligations are not. Uh, whether it's on behalf of those who directly pay the tax 
right? And those for whom I think the um, not sure nitanim mehen means right. I had thought it meant those whom have it who have it paid for them, um, but I'm not entirely sure that's right. And how you evaluate all this in terms of the Torah? Right. So they asked the they asked for two questions. One is they asked for Torah, and the other is they asked for popular precedent. Maybe those two go along along, and maybe they and maybe they don't. Maybe their intention. So here's his answer. He thinks that this depends much more on what past practice is. And what I'm saying is that past practice is really a proxy for current expectations. Then it depends on actual Torah principles. Right? He said explicitly that most of the matter of distribution of the communal tax liability depends on past custom rather than on uh, any kind of Torah principles. And he quote, right? and he, he quotes a, uh, the famous line, the Mordechai writes in front of the Revelator Right, that even if there were Torah principles, not just that the Minhag overrides a, a vacuum, but the Minhag even overrides places where if you asked for what do the precedential formal texts of halacha say, they would say X, but you follow what the prior custom in that community is. How that prior custom developed is not currently an issue yet. Right, it says, Even if the Chachmei HaTalmud right, um, put their principles onto a biblical context, right? It Matzulosmach is an ambiguous term. Does it mean things they really said are deoraisa, or does it mean things that they found in asmach before? I don't know how precise his language is. And he said that this custom doesn't have to be one that's instituted by the right by the elite scholarly class. But even if it's a minag that's just instituted among donkey right among donkey haulers or um, or or ship sailors. Right, whatever the custom of the trade is, you can, right, if you, the judge, are supposed to rely on the custom of the trade as opposed to your halachic precedence. And he quotes a case right, where, we, where we treat such customs, not in terms of taxes, but he quotes a, ca- a case where we, where we, where we treat, such, um, we treat some, such customs as, um, as, um, as binding halachically. Okay, so now he says, we really want to go that far and claim that whatever popular custom is goes, and there's no, there's no, in my formulation, there's no principle of justice other than expectations. So, for instance, right? Even though Rabbi Tam establishes from other Mishnayos the right that there are customs which we treat our customs as shtus, right? So they're wrong. Right? On any objective basis, these customs. Right, these customs should have no halachic weight at all. Right, there are some customs that even where you, the official halacha stated is, everything follows the custom of the land. I'd say, for example, in terms of what the expectations of hours and working conditions are. Nonetheless, some customs are absurd, right? Or perhaps, you know, in my formulation, some customs reflect an inappropriate initial power uh, power power relationship, and so they're not they're not actually just right. That could be one of those 
reactions, or they could just be ridiculous. And the said, no, this notion of minhag only applies if the, the custom is um, established by, by scholars. Okay, and the Mordechai quote, right, quotes the Orzeru, that means not just ordinary, ordinary scholars, but high-class scholars. Right, and he seems to argue the verse, that if you have a minhag that has no Torah basis, Anybody who rules on the basis of custom, if that custom is just is unrooted in halakha, seems right, he seems to think that if a judge rules that way, so they have made an error in judgment. It's not reversible, but they have made an error. So toebeshikladat means the judgment error, um, as opposed to a, a formal error of law, and therefore it's a mistake, but it's not reversible. So even though we have all these sources saying that even where it says explicitly in the Mishnah. Or in other halachic sources, hakol min everything follows everything follows the standard custom. Um, nonetheless, right, that doesn't mean that, that we follow customs that are not Torah rooted. The the Trumas Hadeshin says mikolmakom mirelamar dminyanei misim v'chi haygavna kulhu modu dazlinan baser min hagam divnei ir ovnei amadina shenagu b'mikadem. He thinks that all those positions are dealing with something other than questions of taxes and things like them. There. In question of taxes and things like them, everyone agrees that we follow the custom of the relevant um, jurisdictional community, whether it's the city or the state. Even if it was not established by scholars, um, right, as again, he thinks Rabbi Katz uh, demonstrated this in the matter of right, where, the, where the Talmud upholds the customs of uh, donkey, donkey drivers and, uh, and sailors. Okay, but now we have to ask the question, right? Fundamentally, the issue is going to be, what are right? What is the criterion that distinguishes inyanemi sim v'chihai gavna from other types of areas, such that inyanemi sim expectations govern completely, whereas in other areas the expectations have to have been generated uh, by something that has a basis in Torah? So it seems you can distinguish between uh, between taxes and even uh, matters within the trades of donkey drivers and sailors. The other example the Gemara talks about there is just people in, um, sorry, um, and I think I might have skipped a line here. Um, yeah, I might have skipped a line here. This is, pardon me one second, if I want to check if I somehow elided a line, because that line, that doesn't seem to follow. That would be very bad. Um, pardon me one second. We're in, just checking, we're in uh, Truma Sadeshin Shin Membes. Okay, let's just call it up quickly to make sure I didn't, I didn't um, skip a line. I apologize. Um, those of you who haven't seen the Barilan software now, they get to see an action. It's the most amazing thing. Sadeshin, uh, Truma Sadeshin. Uh, I think we said Rish Membes, right? Let's see which, which section of the Truma Sadeshin it's in. Shin Membe. Oh, Shin Membe. Sorry, my fault. Thank you. Uh, I don't type well under, I don't get remember things well under pressure. Shin Membe. And there's two sections of the Shrimp Edition, also in our section. It's not this one. Oh, it is, it is this section. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, th- I think I just didn't parse it right and I put the line wrong. Okay. So we'll say you can distinguish between, um, you can distinguish between uh, matters within a uh, matters of the city and the donkey drivers to people who are simply 
uh, trying to govern the, uh, the, the, uh, the workings of a caravan. Um, anything which involves a collective, right? This is, this is his key phrase, whether we have the, 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 the Parsi of the previous cases right or not. Everything that involves a group combined, right? So if you're dealing, anytime you're dealing with a collective, a collective has to be governed by its own customs. According to the system they set up for governing their own matters. Why? Because if we required them to follow the laws of the Torah and everything and not the, their own internal customs that have built up, um, let's assume those internal customs now have, are, we're talking about customs that are built up naturally. We're not talking about a a positive structure that they set up for themselves, but a system that can now go of itself. The olam teirim So he claims it's socially bad policy to have people try and follow an abstract legal system rather than to, rather than to govern them in accordance with their own expectations. Um, okay, For this purpose, Right. So because everyone in the group understands this, it's a kind of social contract notion. They each in advance forgive each other whatever, right, um, whatever rights they would have under Din Torah that are not carried out and embodied in their, uh, in their body of, uh, of custom. The Gamri Umakne, right, and they, 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 they make halachically committed, uh, halachically binding commitments to Lemezel Basar Seder Minak Didhu to follow their own, their own, their own customs. Okay, and this, now he says, in addition, uh, another way of framing this is in addition to, um, to taxes and right, internal trades. Okay, right, so the Maram says that partners uh, can transfer assets among themselves or make commitments among themselves uh, simply by speaking without engaging in a formal halachic um, act of commitment. Because right, they do this because the the benefit they have of having confidence in each other's uh, right in, in the other to act on each other's words that's a sufficient basis for them to surrender their formal legal rights and be bound by uh, be bound by verbal commitments. Um, right. Um, I'm not sure what that word means. Right. So whenever, whenever it's mutual benefit to waive the halachic rules of uh, a formal acts of commitment, that's um, right. That's that's uh, right. That's sufficient. Okay. So what about so what circumstances don't we say this? Right. Everything in society should be governed purely by expectations. Why do we ever have a notion of law? So Rabbi Natam the Rosaroh, who established, right, who distinguished between customs that have either an authority, a basis in human authority, or a basis in Torah, and customs that have no such basis, they're talking about chiluk chatseros ubatim uvinyan shalahem v'aschiras polim v'chein schiras batim v'chatseros v'chol ki haygavna de'ein rabe mitzdarfim v'lo itzarech mitzdarfu lemehavet saisi hadadi. They're talking about situations which they claim include. Um, include employer-employee relationships or neighborly relationships. Those are all things which he argues um, do not require the same kind of collective expectation 
that um, that are required by taxes and the other examples he gave. Right, that's why in those cases you need a minhag that has a basis in al pichachamim v'rayev in the Torah or one or the other. The minhag be'alma that any kind of custom, right, a mere minhag mivatel behen din Torah. Okay, then he says you have to look. You have to have standards, right, for the expectations. I'm not nira. The tzrichim leda the minhag kavua pashutu shnat nukach bnei ha'ir lechol apochos plus azimin. Right, so you have to find at least three cases of precedent. You can't just say this happened once, and when it happened once, we did it. So that isn't enough to establish a rule or expectations. He thinks. Because he says, in emergencies, right, what the community does is often make ad hoc decisions with no notion that they're actually creating expectations for the future. So the fact that it happened once is not sufficient precedent to establish, right, to establish a custom that overrides the law. So if it happened once before, you might have to go back and default to Torah. Okay, Mikol Makom, he says, however, uh, even though you do have to demonstrate the existence of the custom, we don't require uh, very formal rules of evidence in order, in order to establish it. But we accept testimony from, you know, you accept hearsay testimony, you accept testimony from people who are invalid witnesses. And the Maram wrote that, right, that the same thing is true about Cheskat Yeshuv, which was the question of whether you had a right to um, prevent other, right, prevent immigrants from coming in if you thought that that would uh, challenge you economically, which is a whole separate share. Um, because, he says, in a case which involves the entire community, so then every person in the community is monetarily affected, and therefore everybody is invalid as a, for witnesses. Right? Because everybody has a stake in the matter. So therefore, when it comes to establishing the custom, you can't be a stickler for formal rules, uh, formal rules of evidence. Okay, but now he says, but it seems to me, even though I, right, I showed above that when it comes to, ta- to taxes, by which I mean the distribution of a communal tax liability amongst the individuals of the community, we say that past custom overrides the halakha. Nonetheless, but the job of a judge is to try, right, if possible, is to reconcile the custom with Torah law. So Torah law plays a role in the sense that when the custom is ambiguous or the custom can lead to multiple legal outcomes, you, right, this is sort of like the Israeli legal system in a sense that, we, when, that um, which allows you to bring in halakha when, right, when there isn't a precedent in the various other legal systems that Israel treats as precedent. So here too he says that you, your primary basis is, precedent, is, is custom but there will always be cases that are not resolvable by custom or there are multiple ways of understanding the custom and you should always try and reconcile the custom to halachic precedent to the extent that you can. Right? Even if you can't do it entirely, but even though you can't always reconcile it completely, some things you have to abandon. But it's better to find some kind of connection than to find none at all. Okay, so the questions for us now are, first of all, is the, right, is the current situation, um, in, the, in the current situation, so A, is, um, what, is the, right, what is the basis of our expectations? 
and right and what's the what's the what's the boundary of the community that frames our expectations and that will govern the extent to which halakha is relevant um, to the situation do we right so that that is i should point a key distinction right that there's an intermediate issue which halakha tends to uh, resist very strongly which is to say people's expectations are that this will be settled in the secular courts um, so that halakha has a strong objection to uh, we could claim it's a biblical violation of lifnehem uh, means they have an, you have an obligation to bring your legal cases to the halachic courts and not to the secular courts. So if you simply prefer the secular courts over the halachic system, not because they, right, it, they, they frame your expectations, because they frame your expectations, then a halachic court could make the same decisions based on the same expectations. But because you prefer their, right, you prefer their judgment or their or their rules intrinsically, so that is in itself a halachic problem, and that gets into the general question of, you know, but what about in the United States? Uh, obviously, that it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't help in it's not relevant in any case between Jews and non-Jews, uh, and it's not relevant in any case between Jews and other Jews who have no interest in the ruling of the court, and probably it and I think it has no relevance in any case where both parties. Are not in advance willing to accept the ruling of a, of a halachic court, but for now, right? For, for, but I think we should we at least have to ask the question among people. Right? If you're dealing with cases among people, all of whom are willing to accept the jurisdiction of a beit din, and that, for example, is, is what the you know there are cases in Lakewood between you know where you're dealing with entirely from entirely from communities, and there's enough social pressure on the part of the beit din that if somebody went to secular court without going to beit din, they would right they would oppose it. So then you're dealing. With you know, with a pure halachic question, but still within that halachic within that community, what are the um, what are the expectations? And a really challenging thing, obviously, is what if the multiple people in the community have very different expectations, right? What if your community includes? Right, what if your employer, for example, expects to right expects you know has its expectations framed by halacha, but your employees include people who even if they're Jewish, never considered the possibility of of going to Beit Din, and certainly never considered being bound by halakha as opposed to whatever they see or hear on, you know, on, on the uh, local talk radio show about employer rights and things like that, right? So those are, those are really big issues. Okay, so this is one source. Um, and another, you know, another question, so the question is, do we have any expectations currently in the United States for how to deal with this? Are there precedents? And do we have any framework within halakha for dealing with cases like this? So the answer, to some extent, is going to be that in Israel, there are, unfortunately, if you might be, there are cases that might be thought similar, which is what happens if contracts are broken when a war breaks out, um, or if there are specific security alerts that um, cancel specific contracts. So there are precedents in Israeli Bataydin. There is very little um, in America. Okay, so let's now go to a... Um, Go to a second, right? To a second tshuva, right? So the first tshuva, the tshuva tzedashin basically says that expectations, expectations govern abstract notions of halacha, and where there are no expectations, then you go back to um, then you go back to halacha. So now let's take a look at the um, a later development in the chetam sofer. This is the chetam sofer dealing with, uh, as he'll tell you, in the aftermath of a fire, right? Po. Kalakodesh, um, I forget, Matistorf. 
um, right? So something happened on the 18th of Adar. Of Adar Shani, right? The, uh, past Adar there was a fire, and the fire, right? The fire you know, started in the house of Anandru, but it kept eating and, and right, burned down, uh, burned down most of the Jewish quarter. And they, there was an international fundraising drive, and and funds were sent from communities all around the world to help the Jews. And now the question is, um, right? The question is, how do we divide the, the, the relief fund that was sent to our community? So they turn to Chassam Sofer and they say, can you please uh, decide how to distribute the relief fund? Now, how did they ask him to do it? Al din Torah, via Torah, or in some way close to Torah, right? And we want, right? So they have three different goals. We want it to be din Torah, or we want it to be something like din Torah, and we want it to lead to communal peace. So here is the Chassam Sofer's line. It is well known. It's impossible to judge these matters in on the basis of actual Torah law. Right? His line. Right? And this is Yodua. Everybody, everybody knows that you can't do this. And he quotes the Trumas Hadesh on the basis of this. Rather, you have to judge it on the basis of something which is close to Dintura, the curve Lasechel and Enoshi, and also something that makes common sense, the Damos Milsa Milsa, to draw analogies, the Dimion Karoksas, with some kind of uh, reasonable, uh, reasonable analogy. Okay, so now the Sam Sofer claims that he is um, acting on the basis of the Truma tradition, but I think you can look at it and see that there is a large difference and that he mentions absolutely nothing about custom because there is no custom here, right? It seems that this is an unprecedented matter and he's immediately going to tell you that, it's, that he has a previous, the, the only case which looks previous is not in fact, is not in fact uh, parallel. Um, okay, Kfar Kastafti Tshuva Ruka Binyan Kiyosib is a he said, I, I gave a different, different thing in term, or a long term about how to distribute government, uh, government uh, relief works in the aftermath of a flood. And there I said, you know, the right halachic analogy is partnership profits. But here we're not talking about profits earned by partners. Here we're talking about distribution, right, distribution to the poor. And that has a very different, uh, right, de- very different basis in halacha. Right. So the um, Sofer says, right, the key line here is Yadua. Right, everybody knows. Everybody knows you can't judge this kind of thing on the basis of pure Torah law. The question is, why not? So right, he quotes the Truman's Edition, but the Truman's Edition had a very simple reason. The Truman's Edition said that justice is a matter of expectations, and so if people have contrary expectations, you can't use Din Torah. But here the Chassam Sofer says nothing about contrary expectations, nothing about communal custom. In fact, this is exactly the case where the Truman's Edition said that you have to be very careful to establish that there was a custom, and here there was no custom. So if you read the Truman's Edition, right, he seems to think that in cases like that, what you have to go back to is um, you have to go, at the very least, you, have, you can only use customs that are established by Chachamim. 
And in the absence of that, right, the Chorah, you go back to Halakha. So I don't think the Chassam Sofer is, um, is really based on the Truma Sedeshin in that sense. He has a totally different notion. His notion is that there's a class of cases which simply cannot be judged by, um, by Torah. So the question is, what's the basis of that class of, um, of cases? Okay. So, let's, so here I want to give you a citation from Usher Weiss, um, contemporary of Usher Weiss, who has uh, right, many books, all entitled Minchad Asher. Minchad Asher on Torah is a collection largely of his um, halachic writings, but you know, with, with, with uh, biblical interpretation and twists, and his halachic writings are often grounded in, um, in, in broad ethical principles. It's one of the things that's very attractive about his, uh, his scholarship. So here he is talking about the concept of pshara. Uh, so pshara halachically is the, no, right, is the notion that sometimes, a, uh, sometimes the outcome of a case is a compromise, literally, right? A pshara is a, 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 a mid-ground, right? What, um, what Rabbi Sender and Sharon used to call cool water, uh, right? Waters, water, right? Waters that are neither, neither hot or, or cool, and it's a compromise between the parties. Uh, there is a tension um, starting, you know, at least in the Talmud, halachic tension as to whether this is an ideal outcome or a um, right or a um, an ex- or, you know a post facto acceptable outcome. Um, we distinguish sharply between cases where uh, the judges already know what the outcome of the case is, and cases where, you know, where, or at least they know where the law is tending, and cases where they don't know where the law is tending, um, and whether the parties themselves. Are, are interested in compromise or whether the judges are seeking to drive them to compromise, or there are all those factors. Um, just give it, you know, it's very shallow background. Let's read what Rav Weiss says about Pshara. He says, In addition to the categories he's listed previously, which don't matter to us, I found another category of Pshara. That Chazal attached, again, whatever you think uh, the words, maybe so make something is to the Pasuk, justice, justice. Thou shalt pursue. Uh, why does it say tzedek twice? Because one form of tzedek is based on law, and another form of tzedek is based on pshara, right? And what are the example? What is the example? Uh, so, if you have two boats that are, that are traversing a river, and they meet each other, and if they both try and pass through the right through the neck of the waterway, then they'll crash into each other and drown. But if they take turns, then they both pass, and the question is, who passes first? And the same with you know two camels, um, right, walking through a, through a, a narrow mountain pass, uh, right? Um, what what happens what happens among them? So what should you do in those cases? So the one which is laden, uh, sorry, the one which is laden takes precedence over the one which is not laden, um, and the one which is closer takes precedence over the one which is not closer, right? So we have some kind of right, rules of Precedence in those kind of areas. You have other kinds of cases in the Gemara. What happens if a king and a bride meet at a crossroad? Or all sorts of of uh, test cases like that one. Okay, or if, right, if there's no objective basis, then find a way to uh, right to, to make a compromise uh, among them. Right. That's Choshen Mishnah passing this way also. So he says. So here is the um, here is the um, here is right, actually it's, it's the one which has further to go. I think I'm not really sure. Okay, so what the um, what the Minchadasher says is this right, these grounds for judging amongst the two boats, the two camel drivers. That you 
right? That you give precedence to the one, uh, right, to the one which is laid, you know, the one, uh, I think, from further away. Uh, or the further we go again, I'm not sure which, I apologize. There is nothing legal, right? There's no basis in Torah for this, all right, for this decision. It's just based on an abstract concept of justice. And we say if they're both equally laden, then we should draw, make a compromise between them. So he says, under most circumstances, the reason we make a compromise is that we don't know for sure which way the law should go. There is, we believe in principle, a legal decision, but because there are conflicting opinions or there are ambiguities about the case, we don't know which the proper legal decision is. We don't know who's right. So since we don't know who's right, we come to a compromise. But here he says, What it means is, when there is no legal basis for making a decision, you can still make decisions, but the way you make decisions are not based on any kind of legal precedent. They're based on a concept of yosher, of ethics, and of pshara, uh, which you know, seems to be some, some notion of, uh, I think, of the idea that everyone should feel that they want in some way. Right? It's talking about the feelings of the parties. Okay. Um, it seems to him fundamentally, the whole getter hapshara, a no din vegam lot staka, ela mishpata musar He thinks the whole concept of pshara in Judaism is not a question of law, and neither is it a question. That is really interesting. What does he mean by staka? Ela mishpata musar right? But rather, it is a fundamental notion of ethics. Uh, because the Michad Gisa, you can't, there's no intellectual resolution to it. But even though there's nothing intellectual that will get you the result, um, right? nonetheless, there is the character of ethics. Right? And there is, right, there is a space in halachic decisions about money for pure ethics. And so what drives the acceptability of reaching decisions based on compromise is not um, that we don't know what the outcome is, and it's not, right, it's not that expectations necessarily are different than law. It's simply that there is a notion of abstract, uh, of abstract justice. Okay, so now we have a, a whole array of principles that enable us to deviate from pure Torah law. You have the Trumas Hadeshin, who says that, um, that in matters where you have Rabbim Mitzurafim Yachad, you have a lot of people who are acting, uh, right, who are framed as a group. Um, right? I would say they, they form a society. So any group that forms a society has to be governed by its, at least in matters of money, has to be governed by their by their own expectations, rather than by um, any kind of law, and their own expectations are binding. But when their expectation, well, they have no expectations. The tribunalists seem to think, then you resort to uh, to formal law. Now, the Chassam Sofer, who claims mysteriously that um, there are things which everyone knows 
cannot be judged by Din Torah Mamash. He does not explain what those things are, but he gives you examples of them. They, you know, they're um, responses to overwhelming, right, to overwhelming um, events that can't have happened before and that happened to groups, right? Those are the, all the criteria we could have. We have to decide which of them are essential. And so what you judge them on, right, is he has a whole new category, things that are, um, things that are close to Torah um, by analogy. Now, this is not quite the same thing. So the Trumas Adeshin at the end of it said that we should try to reconcile custom with Torah to the extent possible. Sam Silver doesn't talk about reconciling. He says that whatever you're doing, which is not the Torah Mamash, it should still be close by analogy of Torah, not at all the same intellectual process as the Trumas Adeshin, although possibly there is an underlying relationship. And then you have the Minchad Asher, who says that there is a space for just um, just abstract justice in certain kinds of uh, in certain kinds of cases, and he derives this from um, from Shira. Okay, um, so now I'm trying to remember how I got to that Minchad Asher. This is my fault. Um, there must be a space in the original Minchad Asher which I forgot to quote, in which he quotes the Chassam Sofer. I think. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So that I apologize again for that. I don't think I got. I didn't get to this magically. I didn't know it in advance. Okay. So now we have one more. Uh, one more source we need to read. This is uh, something that is not in the response of the Chassam Sofer, but it's in a a book of memories of the Chassam Sofer that includes a letter that the Chassam Sofer himself uh, himself wrote about a case um, very much like ours. Right? I think it's in the after, in the aftermath. Of a uh, of a battle in uh, the Napoleonic Wars, um, so it's very, it's very poetic. It says Vayidal Yisrael, in case Israel became poor, Kikvar me'ezah shavuot shavru shavat over over orach ve'ein koneu macher ve'otzat ravu gam ravu. Okay, so there are no passersby, so the right, so the economy is is dead. There are no buyers and sellers, but expenses are just the same as they were. And because we're dealing with the aftermath of a battle, many people have to hire guards, um, right? And those and their expenses are huge, right? They're paying 50 gold pieces a day for these guards. Um, and then aside from that, he says you have to rebuild, you have to re- rebuild uh, the houses that were burned down, and that can be 20,000, 23,000 gold pieces per house. And even if they weren't destroyed by by the house, they've got lots of bullet holes in them, and that can be two or three thousand gold pieces. Of of uh, of repairs, and all the more so, um, right? You know, you have to replace the goods that were inside the house, and so desperately poor people are coming are coming to the house, and um, and the burden on everybody is extraordinarily is extraordinarily heavy. In addition to that, he says, in addition to that, of Varmin Dane, there are many there are many students who are scattered, um, and they right, and they and they're very pressed right. The, they're very pressed. For just basic living expenses, let alone for right, you know, for for housing and for bedding, let alone for food, um, right, to find find food to keep themselves alive. Because beforehand, he says, there was a big yeshiva here, uh, right. Sometimes it had 150 students, but now there are very few, and that'll be you know that's going to happen until God has mercy and brings everyone back together. And furthermore, and here you have the uh, immediate immediate uh, precedent. The Ravu Atam there are lots of teachers and students who are trying to, right, are trying to figure out what do we do now 
that we can't learn. We can't teach, we can't learn. And the, particularly their question is, Im haram mishulam olo. So do the, um, right, do, or do the teachers get paid? I'm not sure why he says Talmudim. It might be that, might be that he, the Talmudim were promised a stipend for learning and, right, the, right, and that they, didn't get, they don't get their stipend at all. So the question is, do these teachers and students get their stipends even though they have not been able to be in yeshiva? Uh, do they get paid and uh, do they get paid or not? So I, the Chassam Sofer, say, I say in my humility, Din I just have no idea what the halacha is in this case. Okay? What do we do? We have no idea what the halacha is in this case. So he says, So what I'm doing is, I am paying all my employees their complete um, salaries without deducting anything at all. Lini Kui means with no deductions. The Atem, but you, whoever he's writing to, right, you serving as right, judges, you should rule in accordance with a compromise thing, which means what? You should make everyone pay half. Okay, what's the basis of this, he says? The basis of this judgment is, he says that this outcome is parallel to the law of what is called the Makat Medina. So here for the first time we have an actual halachic analogy. There's a category called Makat Medina, um, right, a blow to the state, and he hasn't defined this yet, but he's gonna, there is such a thing. And he claims that A, this case fits the category of Makat Medina, and secondly, that the outcome of a Makat Medina is that you pay half, is that the employer and the employee each get half as a pshara. Now he says, you know that the, the Sefer Mirat Inayim, the standard commentary on Chosh and Mishpat, wrote a long, a long piece about this. And he thought that the employee loses everything. Um, right? And he thought that when the Marami, that the Marami Ruttenberg's words, which seemed to suggest that the employer loses everything, he thought right, that at most that means that the employer loses half. So now you have two positions. One position says that you split, and one position says that the employee loses everything. You might end up with the employee only getting a quarter. But he thinks that the shach disagrees with the sma, and the shach and the Maram Padua, who he thinks that the sma did not, um, right, did not, was not aware of, are nechonimo, right, they're really true. But he says, okay, so he says that if I drew this analogy to Makat Medina, I think the outcome would be half-half. But what I did is I paid all my employees entirely. And now he says, But I find it very difficult. I find it very hard to make people pay because it's not there, right? it's, there's no way you can claim that the employer is more at fault than the employee. Right, so that's an interesting notion. Now you could understand this to mean I find it very hard to make him pay more than half, but that doesn't seem to me the simplest reading. The simplest reading means that I find it hard to make them pay at all. Right, so you have three different levels. He pays, right, he pays his employees completely. He thinks that what the other judges should do is impose a 50-50 split. But the truth is he finds it really difficult because he doesn't understand why employers should pay at all because they're not at fault in any way. Okay. 
But he found a text which seems to suggest he believes that the employer has to pay completely. But he says over there, but you got to look at another sugi, and that's hard, um, right? And he said, right, and he looks at the sugi there, um, right? That he, when he says you have to look in Perakimikabel, he's talking about a case of uh, people who rent agricultural land for in exchange for rent, which is supposed to be paid. It's a fixed rent, but it's supposed to be paid out of the produce of the field, and then the field does not produce. Um, right, so the Gemara seems to think that the language there is mazal shil migaram, right? Whose whose fate was uh, whose fate was um, was uh, was it? Right, who right, right? Who was intended to suffer? So that's a challenging notion. to Figure out what exactly that means. Um, but he says the ode hasam hachocher hu amuchzag. Another category over there. Since the payment is supposed to come in kind out of the produce, so obviously the renter is currently in possession of whatever he would have to pay. And possession is a high percentage of the law. So we call in halakha, right? The muhzak is the person who is currently in legal possession. Um, not necessarily rightful possession, but is recognized by the law as being in possession. And we say, if you want to remove something by law from the legal possession of another, the burden of proof is on you. Even if they can't prove legal possession, but if they have, right, if they can't prove rightful possession, if they can prove legal possession, um, which in the case of movable goods just means that it's currently in, in their hands and nobody can demonstrate that it got into their hands illegally, so then the burden of proof is on you. Okay? Um, so there, Shapir because he can say in that case, how can you prove that it wasn't your mazal as opposed to my mazal? So since he's in possession, the burden of proof is the other way. But here, um, where the teachers were not paid in advance, obviously raises the question, what if they were? So the burden of proof is the other way around. So how can you make the, how can you make the balabayit pay? So it seems to me that the simplest way of, um, of reading this is that he thinks the right thing to do is to pay your employees completely. The just thing to do is to split it, and the legal thing to do is to, um, if it actually went to law, then you would have to let the money stay where it is, which means that in, the, in, in his circumstances, um, the vast majority of employees would get nothing. Uh, Alkane, however, Hoyle Misvara, when it comes to just what uh, I think, you know, what we're talking about in Rav um, Weiss, you're talking about just you know, ethical, ethical in- intuition. It seems like they're equally at fault. Again, you can't prove they're equally at fault, but that seems to be our instinct. So I created a compromise, which is what both of them wanted, and both of them wanted each of them to... to they, each, they each agreed that they should lose something, that it shouldn't be one person loses everything and the other person is not involved. And they only wanted me to settle what the, what the proportion was. Right? But he says, I, I made a pshara because they agreed. If they had refused to agree to pshara and they had insisted that I reach, that I reach a judgment, I wouldn't have known what to do. And then until somebody else comes along and, and reaches, and reaches you know, a, a clearer legal judgment. Okay.
so that's to, um, to right to sum up. You can have right a, you know a whole set of bases for making for making the judgments. Um, the only real legal basis that is adduced in right in all these in all these sets of cases is the right. There's a precedent called Makat Medina about which there's a controversy about what the outcome is. Whether the out, right we can find we can find people arguing in all three uh, all all th- all three positions. And therefore, uh, the, the standard outcome of halakha would be that you simply can't touch the case and possession is, and possession is the law, but nobody thinks, right? It seems nobody thinks that that's really a just outcome. That's just a, a legal outcome, right? It's not a just outcome to that where it just, it's a question of whether the money, uh, right, of, what, you know, of whether you happen to cash the check and deposit the check in time. So nobody thinks we should judge it in accordance with Torah. So the question then is, what use is uh, what use is Torah? Okay, that's the that's the basic uh, that's the basic framework. Um, okay, so I was going to do the opening here, but I think that it's probably more important at this stage to take questions, and we can start from this tomorrow, um, unless there are no questions, in which case we'll go on to it. So I'm going to stop the uh, I'm going to stop the share for a minute, and um, anybody if anybody has questions, now is a great time to. Uh, now is a great time to ask them. Actually, I might as well just keep, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't, I seem once again to have managed to lose everyone's faces. <laughs> um, but uh, people are invited to. Uh, um, yes, it's Jerry, okay. Jerry here. Um, for the Turum Masadeshen. Yeah. Uh, who's, so is he telling the, the judge to figure out what the minhag is? Is that, is that the function of a, of a judge? Yes. The function of and a judge, what, yeah. What, what makes him qualified to do that? I mean, it's um, not that he's not that he's a ben Torah. In fact, the ben Torah may not know what the minhag is. Might be the worst person to ask. Well, you know, you're thinking of a ben Torah as a kol guy, right? You know, his, he's talking about a dayan, dayanim, you know, and he's talking about dayanim in it who are you know who are dealing with cases every day. Okay. Right. So, so he he would have experience and he he would know what the yeah. minhag is. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the you know one of the fundamental you know jobs of a dayan is to try and figure out what the reasonable expectations of the parties are. I okay. think that you know, I think that's you know that should always. It's not necessarily you know, the job of a, of a ben Torah. You know, yeshiva guys. He tells you, yeshiva guys might come in and start insisting on formal rules of evidence, and that's a disaster. Right. Um, but an experienced, practical judge, yeah, and you know, you know and, and uh, it might very well be that someone with very little Torah experience would be just as good at that. Except that then, there you know there are secondary issues because the um, like, you know what a judge could do is appoint a fact finder and then accept the report of the report of the fact finder. Okay. Right, and, and the other thing on the uh, yeah. on the um, the uh, the Hassam Sofer and the other one who talked about you know what's the relationship between the Peshara and and Torah. Yeah. Uh, you know that's an interesting question. What is that relationship? And, and it might I've always felt it might have something to do with extrapolation. You know, if someone has learned enough, they sort of develop a sensitivity and, and know how to to go on from what they've learned to something that's a new case. You know, maybe that's a way of understanding what that relationship is. So he talks about analogy. Yeah. So I think you have to distinguish between the pshara that the Chassam Sofer is talking about. What the Chassam Sofer is saying, I think, is that there are these basic, right, there are basic frameworks in halacha for dealing with distribution of assets amongst the community, right? So right there, there's a partnership analogy, right? There's a there's there's a distribution of there's a priority in terms of charity analogy, and you could try and find. Several other analogies. The Chassam Sofer is 
That's his model, is that you start from Torah. It's just that the facts of this case may not be exactly like it, so you massage the you massage the formal definitions in order to fit into a Torah framework. But I think right. it's important to say that Rav Asher Weiss is not saying that. Rav Asher Weiss says that there's a prior notion, a prior independent notion of ethics, and that sometimes the law is just, right, sometimes the law doesn't get to the right result. The right result is, right, the right result is an ethical result, and you don't, and the reason that you encourage Pshara is because, not because, you know, because you're not using fuzzy analogies, is because you think that Following the law will yield the wrong result because the law is bound by certain kinds of procedural notions, which may be very different than what is demanded, what is demanded by justice, um, or because there are cases which law simply can't cover. Right? So he has, you know, he has a nice model case. Right? There are cases where two parties uh, have exactly identical situations. Now he could have said flip a coin. Right, it's an interesting notion, right? We could have just said there are cases where the proper halakha is flip a coin, and that might be the pshara. Uh, but he seems to think that it's not like in those cases there's nothing to do, so flip a coin. He thinks that there are cases where law hits its limits, it has nothing to say, and you can rely on, on ethical principles that precede the law. At least that's the way I understand, um, that's the way I understand Rav Asher Weiss. Okay. Uh, okay, other questions? Yes. Uh... Oh, let's see. Oh, this, this, this is Richard. Hi. So, <laughs> I'm not appearing on the screen, but okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Anyway. We see you. Uh, yes, aided the okay. In the current situation, in a situation like we're in now in the United States or in most uh, Western civilizations, why shouldn't we take the view that expectations are determined uh, by the legal system in which we sign contracts. I mean, that's typically when we have an agreement, when an agreement is made, the, both sides have expectations based on how contracts are interpreted and what it says in the contract and how they're interpreted. And why shouldn't that be essentially the have the same status at least as the minhag of the uh, sailors and so on? So there are, um, I think, two kinds of answers to that, to that question. One in the immediate circumstances is whether it's really true that people's expectations are in a crisis of this magnitude. I, I'm not talking about in a total disaster, which is no precedent, but in terms of normal, dis, normal expectations or reasonably comparable expectations to what happens, that the, the view that you should decide the that a Beit Din should decide based on the uh, Minhag should in, be interpreted to mean based on the legal laws of the jurisdiction in which you are found, assuming that they don't, I mean, there are well-known well things that certain types of laws are on, invalid on their face and so on. But if you're not in the type of autocratic uh, government, which is stealing from the people, that the laws should be, the, the minhag, what counts there as the minhag should be the current uh, legal status and expectations. So, um, I, let me, I'll try to answer this in, in, uh, in a couple of different ways. And I, I should say that my answer may not be the consensus answer. This, I think, is the way, this is one of the areas, I think, which I've been very influenced by, um, 
Rabbi J. David Bleich. Here's how, how I would understand it, I think, without blaming Rabbi Bleich for anything I say. <laughs> right? there, is, um, there is this tension, right, that we do want to preserve some role for, there has to be some purpose to halakha, even in a state where halakha doesn't have, right, halakha doesn't have exclusive or even, or mandatory jurisdiction. That's seen as a policy goal, and that policy goal is rooted in so that's, that's a, prag, I guess we call it a pragmatic ideological reason that we don't want to necessarily say you're right. That is intention with our desire for, people, you know, for justice, which in many ways implies uh, in accordance with expectations. So the way in which we distinguish it is, uh, here's the test case is what happens if when we made the contract, the law was one way, but in the interim, the law has changed. Right, that's our test case, right? So my expectations when I, when I signed the contract entered this agreement were X, but um, now, right now, if I went to secular court, I would be, right, I would be, right, I, I would not have my expectations at the time met. So now the question is, do we define our expectations as, right, do we say that the expectations are everything that was agreed among us substantively at the time, or am I fundamentally saying no, I trust this legal system, whatever its outcomes are, more than I trust halacha. So the last is the objection that we have, right? We object to a framing that whatever that, we allow you to stipulate whatever, whatever specific stipulations you want to make are great. But a blanket saying, I trust this system um, to produce the, the just outcome more than I trust halacha, that's a deeply problematic thing. So for example, and the analogy I'll give you, this is what we know where I learned it, is in the context of the prenuptial agreement. So attention you have with the prenuptial agreement is that um, if, right, if, if you want it to be decided by Beit Din, if you want the finances to be decided by Beit Din, which you, don't, you can opt out, but if you want the finances to be decided by Beit Din, so we recognize that most people's expectations, most people don't expect to go to Beit Din. Um, and in many cases, the, the expectations of the community are not quite those of Halakha. We don't have enough precedents yet incorporating contemporary expectations to get there. Um, at the same time, right, we want people to go to Beitin. So what we say is, and again, this is the way I was taught. I'm not sure that people still necessarily do it that way, but this was already Blake's position, I believe, very strongly, and that's where I still am, is you can stipulate that the Beitin must judge this in accordance with, um, with, with, you know, with divorce, uh, divorce apportionment law as of the date of the agreement. So you can incorporate the entire legal system, but you have to freeze it at the moment you make the agreement, because now what you're saying is, I like the substance of this system, that's fine. But you can't say that the Beitin should decide in accordance with whatever the, legal, the law is at the time of the divorce, because that's expressing your faith in the, outcomes of the, in the outcomes of the system as opposed to in the substance of the system. So that's how we try, right? That's how we try and do it, because saying that you judge it by what the expectations are now is not a function of right. It's not a function really of expectations because the relevant expectations are the expectations when you entered into the contract. So that, that that's a long-winded answer, but I think that's what I'm. That's what that's how I would understand it. Is that um, is that if it's reasonable to say that um, Bayton should in this matter as well should make any decisions in accordance with what the expectations of the parties were at the time of the contract, and if the expectations of the parties were that they found the substance of the American legal system to be just, and therefore they, right, 
or just enough that that's what they expected, you can incorporate it that way. But you can't incorporate anything that happened since the time of the contract. Okay, that makes sense? That makes sense. I, I, I'm not, I don't know enough law to know what contract law says about changes, how changes in the law affect previous, previously agreed contracts. Right, and I, I imagine that there are very different, that it, it very much depends on the language of the contract and the language of the law. Right, so that is, you, when you sign a contract, it will specif sometimes specify the jurisdiction and the time at which, you know, this is to be interpreted according to the laws of X, Y, and Z. Um, so I, I don't, yeah, yeah. So prenuptial agreements are not a good example. There are too many other things going on there. That could be. I, you know, employment contracts might or might not be a good example, which is what we're, you know, employment contracts and um, delivery contracts, all those sorts of things are, um, are you know, are, might, might, they, might, might only have, they might all have unique cases. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with that. I don't, you know, and again, if it came to Bayton, I think, you know, that in, the not many cases I've been involved in, uh, you, know, the, you know, the first thing that we, you know, we always have to do, uh, let's say we had landlord-tenant cases, the first thing you have to do is look up landlord-tenant law because the parties sign a contract and the contract is binding under secular law, so they they expect to be bound by secular law. So that's, right. you know, that's the first thing a bait team does in cases, in cases like that. But I also made us check whether the law had changed, you know, whether we were bound by the law as it's in the contract as signed or if anything had changed dramatically in the interim since then and judged it by the law at the time of the contract. Uh, Very often a contract will specify that it is signed in accordance with the laws of such and such a jurisdiction or subject to certain sections of law as they currently exist or may subsequently be amended. Right. So I think that, you know, I think that that would be a, a more challenging question in uh, question in halakha external to the question of Dina Malchut Dina. Right, Dina Malchutadina is a separate question, right? Which is not about, which is not about expectations necessarily, but might be about, uh, might be about jurisdiction, um, right? So I think that's also right. We have, you know, we should. I'm bracketing the question of Dina Malchutadina. There might be times when, right, when you halacha is bound to apply secular law regardless of the expectations of the party, right? Someone, someone comes to court and their expectations were fully halachic, and you walk in and say, "I'm sorry, you know, this ha this happens a lot with one party in a case, right, where." Uh, where people realize they have no secular case, so they come to Beitin and try and get Beitin to enforce something halakhic against the other party. And you look at them and you say, "Sorry, dina dina. right? So I, I don't, you know, but I think that's a separable. I think that's a separable area. Uh, I think also, another question. Yes, let me just finish. Right. That, right? Another question which has to be raised here is the extent to which the American legal system genuinely raises sub substantive expectations for people, uh, right? Because often Right? You know, in many cases, people have no idea what American law actually says and, right, and don't really you know, like it all. They just figure if it happens, it'll get settled in court, but they have, no, they have no relationship to the substance of the law. And it might be that halakha it takes much less cognizance of the idea it'll be settled in court, right, because the reason I raised earlier, okay, you thought it'd be settled in court, but you have no expectations as to the substance. You agreed to the jurisdiction of our court. So what, right? Once you agree, to, right? So that's a totally different, that's a that's a totally different matter than if you have substantive expectations. 
Um, and also, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes the expectations are, are you know, and I think this is you know, part of what Ray Weiss talks about, sometimes the expectations are inherently unjust, and that's part of the job of judges, right? And, you know, in America, we recognize this, that sometimes, you know, that there are challenges, right? For example, one of the challenges about the prenup is that there are jurisdictions that, um, that are highly suspicious of the, of the power relationships involved in prenuptial agreements, and that's why it's best to say that the prenuptial agreement is not related to the secular marriage at all, which is true, because if it becomes, a, if it were viewed by the secular courts as a prenuptial agreement, it would be subject to much stricter requirements of asset disclosure and uh, things like that. Um, so I think that Batidin should have the right to say that this is the secular law, but the secular law is fundamentally based on an injustice, uh, right? It's based on, you know, on either, you know, whichever way, whichever, whatever your political framing is, either on, you know, it, it enshrines illegitimate monopoly power on the part of the employers, or it enshrines illegitimate monopoly power on the part on the part of the workers through a union, right? All of those are are ways in which halacha, like any other judicial system, can put aside contracts if they violate conscience. Now, also, how does this get affected by social contract theory? Absolutely. Well, social That's contract theory is the same issue, right? You know, I think that the the Truma's Hadeshin fundamentally takes a social contract position. Right, whatever the group, whatever the group decides among itself, has to be binding. Yeah. But right, the question is, you know, is it an absolute position? Whatever they decide, or do we say no? Some right, some contracts are made among groups in a situation of terribly, you know, terribly unjust situations. And so, the job of a court system, to the extent that it's capable of doing so without losing its own authority, is to set aside unconscionable contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know whether that, you know, but again, there's very little precedent in halacha, uh, very very little precedent in halacha, and nobody thinks you should use halacha. So that's really a deep question now in dealing with these issues. You know, what is our basis as Torah scholars for even beginning to address these questions if Torah precedents per se are not the basis on which we're going to do so? Sorry, Robert. Um, yep. Uh, Ari. Um, first of all, um, what you said about the expectations of the parties. So I think it would seem to, that if you were, if, for example, have a contract between two lawyers, um, that it would make sense. Uh, to apply the uh, the law uh, um, and and they were to put in that that clause, right? Then it actually does make sense to uh, because they presumably have the expectation of uh, what the, the legal system would uh, how it would resolve the case. But if you have any other sort of situation, then then maybe maybe between in, in a particular industry where there are where, where, where the law is well known, but otherwise. That's an interesting idea. You know, it depends. The question is whether law can make distinctions that finely, you know, whether it's lawyers, but what about lawyers in areas other than their, than, you know, than their field? What about people who went to law school, but then, you know, but then became, uh, you know, um, you know, became, um, you know, corporate, corporate, corporate radio, whatever it may be. So it's hard to, yeah, I agree in principle, but it's hard in practice. Everybody, everybody, all lawyers study contract law. And even if you didn't, at least you, you, you know that, um, you know, there may be very uh, obscure uh, things that could uh, that could arise that would invalidate the contract or whatever. Okay, I'm open to the argument. I'm just not, I'm not making, you know, I'm not taking a, a strong position. Sure. And then the other thing is, um, um, oh, I forget. All right, uh, I'll come back. Okay. Do you, Do you really think that? there's anyone in America who has preconceived notions about what the law is in this particular case? Or any expectations? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. 
because I know that I attended this morning a mock class that a law school I'm considering going to, which was all about how there's going to be mass amounts of litigation over how exactly to resolve coronavirus questions, and it'll be fascinating to see how the courts play out and things like that. Well, it doesn't seem like anyone really knows what's going to happen now. But the, That's a fair know. point. And it, you, know, you could make the argument that in America generally, law has gotten so complicated, so it's very hard to have any expectations on the most issues um, in many areas. I think that's entirely a fair point. I don't know the answer. Well, one of the, in many cases, the expectation would be that you would be covered by unemployment insurance for four months or six months or whatever. The, what makes the uh, problem of a, of a Jewish school, for instance, a lot more complicated is that religious organizations are not required to pay into the uh, uh, unemployment insurance system and therefore their employees would not be covered. That's that correct. may have changed in this special case by the recent federal legislation. That's something we, I'm not sure of. That's correct. We'll talk about that tomorrow. I have that, I have that as one of the issues. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so... Yeah. Yeah, my other question, I think, was sort of related to uh, Gabriel's uh, question is, um, you know, let's say you have a, a contract uh, based on a certain, you know, the law at a certain date. Um, the problem with that is that there could be changing situations that in which it makes sense for the law to change. And in fact, in, in, the, sexual, in the civil system, the law does change uh, based on the changing circumstances. But if you... Uh, uh, but if you freeze the law at a certain point, you're not getting the benefit of of the change in the law that everybody agrees should make sense. Those, that's, you know, those, those are, you know, we're dealing with like secondary hard cases, right? You know, the first question is, how does halakha have any basis at all? Right? And then if you're saying halakha is going to be governed, you know, can be governed by expectations, now you're making it much harder as well. I, I don't think there's a really, I think we've been struggling for 700 years at least, 800 years at least, to figure out um, how we construct halacha in a system where even for Jews, it's not the default, it's not the default contract system. And we've muddled through, not terribly successfully, as you know, based in America, based on the general indifference of even the Orthodox community to the, uh, right, to the Baitian system, um, certainly in modern Orthodoxy. So I'm not gonna have great answers for you because you know, we, haven't, we haven't succeeded. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you. That was uh, I, that was that was very useful for me. I hope you'll all think about this uh, before tomorrow. And tomorrow we'll able to just start going through some of the ways that people have written legal attempted to write halakhic frameworks for this, and perhaps we'll also discuss the justice issues and see how far we get in terms of thinking how we would handle this. Uh, thank you all very much, and have a. Uh, have a wonderful rest of the day.